0: Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Boom, and today's guest is the writer, Helena Bala. Helena is the creator of Craigslist Confessional, where she interviews complete strangers who tell her stories they have never told anyone before. These pieces mix raw honesty with a full range of emotions that oftentimes make us feel more connected. And with the state of reality right now, I think something like that is more important than ever. You can find these pieces on Quartz at qz.com as well as at craigslistconfessional.com. Once again, I'd like to thank The Real Real for sponsoring today's episode. For everyone in the New York City area, The Real Real is launching its first pop-up shop from December 1st through the 15th down in Soho at 79 Green Street. They will be open from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday and 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays. Make sure to go check that out. Okay, let's get into it. All right, all right, all right, all right. I love that you, you reached out to Leandra initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing that. Because I, I didn't know about Craigslist Confessional at all. Yeah. I became really enamored with it. So, I, just before we get into it, just for, for people who are listening who don't. Um, Really, who who are hearing about it for the first time? Could you just maybe just talk a little bit about it, what it is, and how and why you started it?
1: So Craigslist Confessional, in its infancy, was essentially just a knee-jerk reaction to something that I was seeing when I was working in D.C. as a lobbyist, which is that. People don't really... They're not really honest. There's a lot of duplicity and right. dishonesty, right. I felt, in personal interactions. And then, of course, definitely in business interactions mm-hmm. with people. Um, there was a lot that I was going through personally then, which obviously you know pales in comparison to the stories I hear every day. But I felt that I couldn't communicate that to my best friends. Definitely couldn't communicate it to my parents. Struggled to communicate it to what Alex, my, my husband. Well so okay let's go back a little bit (laughs) um i wasn't born in the states i was Mm -hmm. born in albania and um my dad was in the foreign service so we traveled around quite a bit landed in slovenia hello melania Melania. (laughs) (laughs) landed in slovenia was there for about five years and then we moved to the states we moved to connecticut and when people hear connecticut they think Westport Greenwich Fairfield perhaps you know that's kind of what they associated with and I'm from a little town called Bridgeport okay it's super diverse Uh, I lived in a very um, Puerto Rican neighborhood Mm -hmm. Um, so I kind of grew up quote-unquote listening to a lot of like reggaeton but it just wasn't you know it was it was kind of a different upbringing because while it may lead you to believe that you know okay being in the foreign service and traveling around a lot you know okay parents or family was well off or something. What what is
0: the Foreign Service? I'm not familiar.
1: Foreign, my dad was in the Albanian Foreign Service, not the the American one. But essentially what it is, is they pick uh, civil servants to go abroad and serve different political slash cultural slash different roles in embassies. So my dad was appointed the ambassador of Albania to Slovenia. Gotcha. So he's essentially the representative right. of our country to Slovenia. He was to Slovenia. Um, and that was an amazing experience, right? Because I went to international school, so I learned, uh, really proper English with a British accent. And Can you I'll, still
0: go back into it if you want to? Yeah, but
1: I sound ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I try I'm to not say, asking
0: <laughs> to you I'm just. I'm just curious.
1: <laughs> I try to say rubbish every once in a while. I'm like, no, that's so <laughs> far from right, reality. Yeah. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. But so going to international school, I mean, that really affected me because all of my friends were from different places. You mm-hmm. know, like a friend, a Turkish friend, a friend from Iceland. This is in Slovenia. This is in Slovenia. And then,
0: like, what was the kind of pop culture stuff that you were... Exposed
1: to oh my gosh. I was like really into Tupac. Okay. Um, I can actually still probably rap like Changes Mm -hmm. and and Troublesome 96. Those were my two favorites. Yeah Um Tupac's
0: from Baltimore not too far from DC.
1: There you go. So, um, and then I also was into obviously like the Backstreet Boys, but I was still (laughs) even so like I wasn't into Nick like everybody else. I was into AJ the bad boy Oh. You even, does anybody even remember yeah, AJ Yeah, AJ had
0: like the really thin... Yeah,
1: the, the, the really weird <laughs> no. chin strap. Oh. What,
0: what do you call yeah, that? Yeah, like it was just like... um, oh, like the, oh, yeah, it was just like a really bad sculpted facial yeah, hair. Like, it was awful. Real thin. It was bad. Yeah, I had a chin strap at one point. <laughs> Not thin like that, though. Not thin like that. Oh, gosh. You know, my, this beard wasn't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day.
1: You know? <laughs> that took time, that it one. It took one. some time. Yeah, that's a story <laughs> right. for another time. Anyways, AJ was my boy. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was interesting there because it wasn't, it was really not homogeneous like in any way. And I came from a super small country where, you know, Albania is tiny. There's 2.7 million people. Okay. Uh, since like the 2011 census. So, and then you, you're kind of thrown into this place where there's people from all over the world, different cultures, all kind of clashing. And it, as an outsider, which is what I was in the very beginning, Um, it kind of makes you think, okay, what are these people about? Like, What do they do? What are their cultures like? How do they function? Um, And obviously, as a kid, you're not that cerebral about it. But
0: But also, did you feel like you were kind of floating around a little bit and that you didn't have a certain identity? You were kind of a mix of a lot of different things. I
1: definitely felt that I didn't have roots. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of this kind of comes down to. And especially when we moved to Connecticut, um, you know, that changed. It was almost overnight, you know, I had a group of friends and then all of that vanished and I had to make different friends right. in a different, you know, uh, came here when I was in seventh grade. Um, and it went from being super heterogeneous and everybody's different and has a different story and, you know, diversity being celebrated to almost, not that it wasn't encouraged in 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 Connecticut, mm-hmm. but everybody kind of had their own, thing and you know they'd been there they'd been raised there they had friends there they had roots there they had like a very clear sense of self and being kind of shoved in the middle of that and feeling very very different and then having this obvious awful accent on top of that was like oh gosh this is nerve wracking. I know. don't
0: know. You don't have an awful accent. There's-
1: Not anymore. But do you know the amount of television I had to watch to get rid of it? It was awful. <laughs> what was
0: that? What was your show? That, that Golden Girls. Golden Girls. Still Girls? Is. Yeah.
1: Still is. I am <laughs> obsessed with it. I know how stressed out I am in life on based on how much Golden Girls I watch. That's amazing. The more I watch, the more stressed out I am. Everybody. It's like stress
0: relieved That's the thing. I wish more people would be like instead of, like, you know, when people watch Sex and the City, they're like, I'm more of a Samantha. People should do that more with the Golden Girls. Like, I'm actually more of a Blanche.
1: (laughs) I'm a Dorothy and Sophia. (laughs) I tell people that. I'm not even ashamed of it. I'm like, I'm a Dorothy and a Sophia together.
0: That's great.
1: Um, Anyways, so Golden Girls was my thing. But um, I actually came here right before 9-11 happened. So... It was almost like an immediate shift in the way that I was regarded by, like, my friends and peers before and then after.
0: Oh, you felt, like, ostracized after 9-11? Mm,
1: I, I wouldn't say ostracized, uh, but there's one event in particular that kind of stands out in my mind, which is very weird, because I, I, I'm not sure why it would. It wasn't something that kind of broke me or changed me. It was just something that I noted, and then I was like, oh, wow, so this is part of my mm-hmm, reality now. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the day right after 9-11, we went to school and one of the girls, uh, in my class called me a towel head. And I was like, what does that even mean? What is a towel head? Am I, I'm not Muslim. Does she know? Not that they're, you know, not that it makes a difference, but you know, I'm not, we're not all from like, but this is xenophobia at its best, right? You're a stranger, you're different, you're bad. Um, so she said that and I went and told my teacher because awful thing to do. But still, I, I tattled and I yeah. told my teacher and my teacher was like, well, that's not a nice thing that she said. But I remember that she wasn't punished. Like she didn't get detention or anything. Like mm. my teacher didn't talk to her. It was just one of those like, OK, this is going to happen because people are scared and they're afraid of anything that's different. And so I noticed that and it was just like it kind of even entrenched even more deeply into me that idea of am different and it went from being, you know, different in a great and a celebrated way to different to not necessarily the best way. Mm. So that was kind of what was growing up there was like.
0: What was uh, what was your family like? Were you are you close with your family?
1: I'm very very close. I'm an only child. Oh, me too. Yeah. So I'm very kind very of, close. I'm kind of an only child. I'm kind of an only child too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I grew up as an only child. Me too. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um so, yeah, my, I'm very, very close to my parents. I absolutely love and adore them. But my dad actually wasn't here when we first moved here. He went back to Albania. He was working um, lots of political turmoil in that country, and mm-hmm. he was working there for a while, um, kind of writing for newspapers. He was part of one of the political movements there, the democratic
0: movement there. Um, That's cool. How did he get involved in all that stuff?
1: You know, my dad has a fascinating life trajectory. Yeah. Um, and you can probably cut all this out later, but I'll tell you anyways for the sake of conversation. Um, in Albania, you don't really have a choice for like where you go to school. You It gets picked for you, depending on who you are and your family name. And, you know, back, he was raised during the time of socialism, my dad and my mom both were. Um, so my mom went to med school and became a doctor. And my dad, um, I don't even know what the word for this is, but... He helped raise chickens in a cooperative. Okay. Like, that's what his schooling
0: Community was. Community farming? Yeah, yeah, I guess.
1: So that's what he did. And then, and he was absolutely brilliant, like very, very good at math. And he had a mentor who saw that in him and was like, We're going to help you out. And so he eventually kind of moved up the ladder there. And then made a name for himself, and then somebody at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs kind of perked up, noticed that he was doing really good work, and was like, why don't you come and work for us here? So he went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, started working there, became a career politician, and then he got this appointment to go to, um, it was either Paris or or Ljubljana, and it turned out to be Ljubljana. So we went to Slovenia for five years. And because of diplomatic immunity, my mom couldn't practice. She, she couldn't...
0: So diplomatic immunity goes both ways. Yeah. Good so, on the parking tickets, bad... Bad on, on the, <laughs> on bad the, <laughs> the on career. Baby, bad on the career. Yeah. yeah. So
1: my mom couldn't, couldn't practice, and she yeah. just kind of didn't... Didn't work as a doctor for five years and then, you know, he came here. And when you that,
0: came here, was she able to start working as a doctor? No, oh. because
1: we, so we needed the money and there was really no way. My dad was making very little money. I mean, incomes in Albania compared to here, it's just, it's like peanuts. Mm-hmm. You know, you make nothing, you can't live on an Albanian income in the States. But he went there and he was working and my mom needed to get to work as well just to support the family. And so she started cleaning houses. Mm. And and I went with her when I could when I wasn't in school and that's how we got by for yeah. the first few years. Um,
0: that that seems to happen. that seems to have a lot. A lot of immigrants who are like highly educated, highly skilled, yeah. they come over here and it's just you have to start all over again. Yeah. I never understood that.
1: I mean, it's it's really tough, but it's also understandable because the medical system in Albania is nowhere close to what it is here. Mm. My husband's a doctor, mm-hmm. and I know his training, how rigorous it's been, how difficult it is to become a doctor nowadays. For my mom to have bypassed all that and just gotten the MD behind her name with a different type of training altogether would have been unfair. Sure. So at the very least, she had to take a bunch of like medical prerequisites and then you know, take the step, the boards, and then, you know, gotcha. and then eventually get the MD, which she couldn't, we couldn't afford to do. Mm-hmm. So I went to school and she went to work and that was the first few months were absolutely horrific. I mean, she went through this really, really deep, deep depression. Um, I mean, can you imagine, you know, going from being a doctor and then an ambassador's wife to cleaning somebody's
0: yeah. toilets. I cannot, I it's, cannot.
1: I'm sure on her ego it wasn't easy but did
0: that did her depression affect you in any way
1: I mean yeah the 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 roles definitely turned the tables turned the roles switched I became my mother's keeper you know there's no there's very little when somebody's like actively crumbling in front of you there's very little room to be selfish and say well this is hard for me too right you know you just kind of have to pick up the slack for everybody else and you know put on a happy face be brave and and help everyone out so in a lot of ways that kind of still carries on you know I, yeah. I i i like taking care of my parents i never thought that the responsibility hurt me one way or another but it it definitely kind of bypassed a lot of crucial steps in childhood you know right so
0: well you know that was if that was taking up your time do you remember the first thing that you were really interested in
1: i i always read yeah and i always wrote but yeah. I read and I wrote out of necessity. You know, this was what do you my, mean by that? this was it was my escape. Mm-hmm. It was something that I needed to do. I read to escape and I wrote to process. Um,
0: what were you reading?
1: A lot of stuff that was, in retrospect, super inappropriate. You know, like I read Lolita when I was like. <laughs> 13 yeah and I just didn't get it and then I went back and I reread it and I was like oh this is interesting right and I was really encouraged to read you know my folks they really that that is the one thing that they always said is read read and study and learn about the world and be curious and that and then I wrote because I didn't really I mean I couldn't really talk to my mom about how I was feeling and my dad wasn't there and so that's really where the seeds of like processing my feelings and thoughts through writing were sewn. Um and that's something that I do to this day. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I need to get something scoshed out. Yeah. I'll take out my little trust
0: trust okay. trusty
1: notepad over here and yeah. I write my stuff down. And yeah. that's how things get processed.
0: That's great. Did your uh, did your parents have a plan of what they wanted you to do? Were you kind of left to your own devices?
1: No, I really wasn't, Um, you know, and a lot of immigrant children will tell you this, but essentially my parents were very, I I don't want to say rigid, but Mm -hmm. they wanted me to do something that was going to make me an easy living, you know, Uh, something traditional. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be an engineer.
0: Right. And something um, like stable,
1: something stable, something that, you know, is, is steady work. Yeah. And I remember I'd always been told, oh, you know, you would make a great lawyer. You're so verbal. You speak so well. You argue so well, which is stuff that people say all the time. And yet none of it matters when you're actually in law school. It's Very, very, very different, you know. (laughs) So if you're ever told, whoever's listening, go to law school because you argue well, don't. Don't do it. Uh, Resist. Anyways, so law school had always seemed kind of like that, okay, this is what you should do.
0: That was instilled at a very early age, do you think?
1: Um, a large part of it was kind of my own doing. Mm-hmm. Because I was looking for... I, I knew that there was pressure to find something to do. And I was looking for an outlet. And, and I thought, you know, well, if everybody's telling me that this is what I would be good at, maybe I should listen up and, mm-hmm. and you know, heed their advice. And so...
0: You never had, like, any, like, sort of rebellious streak or just...
1: Absolutely none. <laughs> Absolutely none. I look back at that. I'm like, I should. Like, where was it? Where When was yeah. I a teenager? When did I have, like, my little phase? And I didn't. And I'm wondering if this is it now at oh, okay. 27, Well, you know? it, it
0: sounds to me a little bit like, you know, you had to mature uh, quicker in certain ways, Yeah. you know? With all the traveling, you know, constantly, you know, being in different places where you have to, you're new all over again. Yeah. You know, not feeling like you, like your roots being upended constantly, you know, especially just you and your mom and dealing with her struggles and stuff. So it's like, you got to do that. And now it's, now it's your time to uh, flip it up. To maybe be
1: a little bit more selfish. Yeah. Yeah. And be more, more introspective. But, you know, I, I. I never saw this as, like, the opportunity cost. I always saw it as the benefit of being raised the way that I was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's a good thing. I don't know. I always think that if you go through a lot of things that are character building, it's exactly that. It's not a hardship. It just Oh, no. It's yeah. this wonderful experience that yeah. has shaped you.
0: Oh, completely. Completely. I uh, I, I couldn't agree more. So, so in your mind, you're just like, all right, you know, I'm going to go to law school. I'm, I'm going go to go down school. this road. And, like, so... What was that process like for you? So
1: I I applied to law school and I got in. I got in at GW. I mean, my goal was to go to like a top tier law school. So as long as that was checked off, I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is fine. I'll go. So I got into GW and I had been in DC for undergrad at that point for four years. I was really excited about the prospect of staying for three more So I heard back, and I was ecstatic, and I remember my dad kind of walking into the living room and being like, what is going on? I was like, I got into GW, and he was really, really happy, like, probably the happiest I've seen him.
0: Were your folks still in Connecticut? Yeah. Okay. okay.
1: Um, So I went, and then I knew probably within the first semester that this was not... What I wanted to do.
0: What was going through your mind where you're like, I've made a huge mistake?
1: I've made a huge mistake. And
0: then what made you keep going through your... Was it it something along the lines of like, I've already put in so much work, I just need to finish what I started?
1: Both, both. I think sticking to it, the idea of finishing what you started, Mm -hmm. um, just inertia, you know, I'm here, the money already lost after, you know, a year of law school. Um, And then the idea too that, okay, a law degree is very flexible. Um, you can do anything with it. You know, this is what people always tell you. you is that do, true? Yeah, Okay. to a certain extent, yeah. yeah. But then, you know, we, we also have a hoop-jumping society, you know, like things that, oh, you, you went to law school. Okay, so you must be able to read, write well, argue well, right. you know, things that people assume when you've done certain things. Absolutely not right. I mean, I went to school with some not very bright people but (laughs) that all said you know I, i i i saw it through just because i felt that i had to and in retrospect i'm kind of torn i'm 50 50 between i should have left and you know okay i'm kind of glad that i stayed because it's always a good backup plan um but I don't know. I think a few more years and I'll be clear on whether that was a good investment or not.
0: (laughs) Well, what did you have in mind to do after? What were you going to do with that degree? You
1: know, I wanted to, I always wanted to, and, and, you know, Amal Alamuddin made this like super popular, but I wanted to go into human rights. Mm -hmm. Um, I had worked in uh, human trafficking on the policy side of human trafficking before that. And uh, I worked on a lot of civil rights issues and, and human rights issues. While you were in school? While I was in school. So were
0: you like interning at different organizations Of course, yeah, and stuff? You, can't,
1: you have to when you're... Yeah. You know, I, I interned at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. I interned at the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Energy.
0: What was it like uh, being exposed to all those different organizations?
1: You know... Working on the NGO side of things Mm -hmm. is uh, pretty amazing because there's a lot of latitude to do a lot of good work. You just have to have some foresight and also be okay with feeling like you're, you know, sharpening pencils and pushing papers half of the time Mm -hmm. because sometimes it gets stagnant. You know, it all depends on what the, what the, what's happening on the hill, on Capitol Hill. Um, And then working at DOE, Department of Energy, that's like the epitome of bureaucracy. Right. So if you want to feel like you're not really doing very much, absolutely. You know, if you don't want to work every day and put your mind to use and, you know. You're just spinning your wheels. You're spinning your wheels. going nowhere. Yeah. So go and do that, that.
0: Was that frustrating for you?
1: That was very frustrating. And I think that the frustration was partially lifted when I went to work on Capitol Hill Mm -hmm. because that's really where things just get super interesting, you know, as you can be the lowest on the totem pole and still get to do some really fascinating stuff. And so I got a fellowship um, to work for um, uh, a congressman on Capitol Hill, and that was amazing. I mean, I absolutely loved that. I was doing something different every day. I had... An opportunity to talk to so many people, just kind of learn about different issues, mm. and that was fascinating. And then I took what kind that. of stuff were you doing? So I was doing mostly foreign affairs stuff, just okay. because that's what I studied, kind of in, in in law school, and that was what my forte was. But it was really anything and everything. Like when something needed to be done, somebody needed to step up to do mm-hmm. it, because it was a very small office, and so you had an opportunity to learn about whatever interested you, really. Um,
0: Did you like the Congressman you were working with? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Can you yeah. say who it was or
1: Yeah, Joe Garcia, he's okay. running again. Awesome. So um, good luck, Joe. but <laughs> he's you know, he was a great guy, very, very smart, and you find that there are kind of very similar personalities that run for public office. You see that um, in different people. And I definitely saw it in him. He has that, that, that spark.
0: He he's, was fighting the good fight.
1: He's a very, yeah, he's a very bright, very bright guy, super intelligent and amazing people skills. So there's really something to be learned, not only on that kind of theoretical plane of, OK, these are great issues that I'm learning about. But then you see the people who are actually doing the work and what's working for them and what isn't. And
0: where they're like hitting roadblocks and stuff and where like things aren't moving and all the time where they're uh, like, are there ways to change things?
1: Uh, Popular opinion? or No. <laughs> no, no, there aren't. Uh, people would write in all of the time with issues that they cared about and, you know, write your congressman, right? Yeah. You hear that all the time. Yeah. Oh, you, you want something to be changed. Write your congressman. There is a list of responses that you have that you get to pick and you send a canned response to really? each person. You tailor it a little bit just so that it doesn't feel completely, you know, strange. But it's basically just somebody picking... A drop-down menu, you know, something from a drop-down menu. Did you find
0: packing. that disheartening?
1: It's were you what, expecting it yeah. yeah it's what needs to happen for things you know change is very incremental and it's it, it's very very difficult to come by and you make compromises sometimes for the greater good and i know that sounds ridiculous but
0: <laughs> you're speaking true. their language
1: i know i'm speaking their language They're, oh gosh
0: are you a lizard person
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know it is true it is true and um And then I did something even worse. I mean, if you think this is me speaking the language, I uh, I became a lobbyist after that. So right,
0: but there are good lobbyists, right? It's, oh, (laughs) no.
1: No, there are. There are. I'm just kidding. Um, Because
0: I guess you know, like from my only experience with like lobbyists is like a what you read in articles about like how the money just pushes all the agendas, and then you see like the heightened version of that (laughs) in you know TV and movies where. You know, these you, they put a face to these people and they are like depicted as monsters a lot of the time. Well, most of the time, mm-hmm. you know, like, but there are people that are lobbying for good things. Absolutely. Okay. I mean,
1: I was a higher but- education lobbyist, so that's probably as good as it gets, right? Yes. The world is this this weird little microcosm of personalities that need to be... You really need to have so much knowledge about what you're entering in order to succeed there. And you need to have the personality for it, which I absolutely didn't. And I found this out the hard way. What is
0: it? What is that personality you think? Or some of those, if you could just give me some of those traits. You
1: just need, you need to be a schmoozer. Right. You need to know how to get what you want from people, how to say the right things. So you're working off of a script, mm-hmm. right? And you're always on when you're, out there and you're at a happy hour you have your cards on you you're handing them out constantly what do you do right. who do you work for this is who i am this is who i work for this is my issue set
0: what can you do for what me what can
1: you do for me looking right. around
0: to see if there's other people that
1: absolutely
0: they need to, you, know, you need to be talking to her absolutely. or they will need to be talking to her.
1: can you name drop who do you know yeah. name drop as much as you possibly can right
0: <laughs> that's just that sounds so exhausting i mean i it experienced is. that on a different level i lived in la for a year and it was just, the, it was the same damn thing. Yeah. you know, It's exhausting. And you it meet is exhausting. the same people
1: over and over and over again. These caricatures of the people that you read about and you yeah. don't think actually exist. Yeah. And then they do because you're working with them and you're meeting them. And it's really, you know, it's like I was saying before, it's a duplicity, right? You go to work putting this mask on of who you need to be and who people think, already think you are. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you know, work within that because that's the only way to make any sort of impact or to survive in that world and if you deviate even a little bit from your script you're done they sense it
0: well like in in your opinion how do you i mean how do things get done in washington like how do things get changed
1: you know money definitely talks yeah um, so there are a lot of very important interest groups, and there are a lot of people who know a lot of other people who are, you know, Washington institutions. You know, you drop a name, and you're already at a different level of conversation with somebody.
0: Really?
1: Um, absolutely. And you know, you you I when I was getting a job, I was cold emailing people just. Somebody that I you know, met over coffee randomly, like, oh, I'm looking for a job. Can you connect me to anybody? Here's a card. Here's this. Reach out to this person. I know this person. And it's just the most exhausting, the most tiresome thing because you're grasping at straws. You have no idea what's happening, who's on your corner, who right. to actually reach out to. But that's what it's really all about is who you know. And coming from a world where I knew absolutely no one, I mean, my parents... Had no knowledge of this country, no knowledge of the field I was entering, no knowledge of really anything related to going to law school or being a lobbyist or working at the level I was working at. You know, who do you turn to that you trust? Be right. like, hey, can I get some guidance on what the hell I'm doing here? Um, so it was a lot of trial and error. And like I said, tiresome, tiresome stuff.
0: Did you, did you reach a breaking point with it?
1: it really wasn't a breaking point it was a very gradual realization that this is not for me Mm -hmm. and that's what that's when Craigslist confessional started that's when the idea or the seeds to it kind of were planted And a lot of people ask like how did you how did you get started where did you get the idea for this and it kind of almost forces like a linear narrative of, oh, I did this, and then yeah, I was feeling this, and simple. then I, and it's never like that. I mean, I think it's like an intersection of, of my past and what it was like to be an immigrant to this country and how I was raised and maybe even a little bit of just my personality type. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the unhappiness that was sewed in at where
0: I was my job. Part of the interruption, I'd like to thank The Real Real for sponsoring today's episode. For those who don't know, The Real Real is the leader in authenticated luxury consignment, and they will be launching their very first pop up shop in New York City from December 1st to the 15th. The concept store will feature a curated collection of its best luxury consignment, including items from Chanel, Gucci, Celine, Chloe, Cartier, and thousands more. To make things even sweeter, they will be adding new items every day, including men's, women's, jewelry, watches, art, and home. And on top of that, their authentication experts will be on hand to answer any and all authentication questions about luxury items. And make sure to take advantage of their coffee bar while you're there, too. Come early and come often. Again, the details are who? The Real Real Pop Up Shop. When? December 1st through the 15th. Where? Down in Soho at 79 Green Street in beautiful New York City. Times, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Friday, and 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays. Don't sleep on this. Make sure to stop by and take advantage of this awesome opportunity. Okay? Back to the show. Did you have the idea for a while in your head, and you were like, you know, I want to do this thing. You know, how how did it, you know, nuts and bolts come together?
1: So... Here's something that I think, and this is again, when you get into that trouble of like having to explain to somebody how something happened and you build a narrative and then you just tell that story. Right. Or I don't no want to hear again. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I don't want to do that. But what I was noticing in DC now, uh-huh. K street is actually like a couple of blocks away from the white house. Right. I worked in Metro center where you could actually see the white house office buildings from my building. Oh, wow. Um, which is amazing right to 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 work in the epicenter of power Every day I would get out to go to work. I would get off of the train station.
0: Love that D.C. Metro, man.
1: D.C. Metro. And there was this lady who uh, was always kind of underneath the awning, rain or shine or whatever. And she has this publication in her hand. It's called Street Sense. It's a homeless publication run by homeless people, written and compiled and everything by homeless people. And so she's standing up there and she's waving it around and she's, screaming street sense um and and she's in a wheelchair and she sings this song which is i believe i can fly by r kelly Mm -hmm. and the irony of it just always upset me so i started my day off kind of feeling like oh goodness you know there's and this isn't the only person right you walk down that one block span to walk to the building and there are four homeless people that I can still name. I yeah. like remember their faces. I know what they look like. I know what they did on a daily basis as I passed them. And this bothered me. You know, we 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 live in arguably the most powerful country in the world. Um, I worked in one of the richest areas mm-hmm. in the United States, and yet homelessness is pervasive, and persistent. And honestly, it seems like nobody gives a shit. Because in that area, thousands of people a day, thousands of powerful, wealthy people a day pass these people and completely ignore them. Mm -hmm. So just by virtue of working uh, uh, and going to a lot of events on Capitol Hill, I'd get like free box lunches. This is how they get people to go to their events is they offer free lunch, right? Mm -hmm. So you go and grab a box lunch and I'd bring it to one of the guys who stood in front of my building every day. And this guy, I don't know his name. I I don't remember, I don't think we actually ever exchanged names, but I call him Joe. And I change all the names of all my stories anyway, so it's anonymous, but I call him Joe. And, And Joe had very obvious mental health issues. And I would bring him the box lunches, buy him a soda every once and again. And I remember it kind of became, like, a thing that we would do. Like, hey, what's going on? Give him something and then go back to work. And I don't even want to get into, like, what that was doing for me and the reason why I felt it absolutely necessary for me to do that, that I felt it, that I owed it to him.
0: You don't want to get into that. Uh,
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) I would. I'd love to, but we would have to spend, like, another two hours here. (laughs) But anyways, I walked up to him one day. And I didn't have anything on me. And he looked at me and he was like, are you mad at me? Because he was used to me always bringing him something. And Mm -hmm. I guess he didn't understand, like, why all of a sudden I didn't have anything for him. And I realized that this person is depending on me for his food, for his lunch. That really got to me. Um, So instead of, you know, that one day, instead of, like, having this interaction of this exchange, here's some food, I'm going to go to work now. I stopped and I talked to him. And it was kind of a conversation that we're having right now. Like, hey, Mm -hmm. what's your deal? Who are you? Why are you here? Um, I asked him a bunch of questions. And he kind of, like, he wasn't annoyed. Like, you would expect somebody to be annoyed when you're asking them a ton of personal questions and, and now they don't even have their lunch. But he seemed really, like, genuinely interested in talking to me. And so we had this really weird cerebral conversation, and I told him about a lot of the stuff that I was feeling, which is a lot of the stuff that I've shared with you, right. feeling alienated because of my work, feeling like I needed to do what I was doing, feeling stuck in what I was doing, um, unsatisfied, but then also like I owed it to my parents to do it and to continue on and to fulfill their expectations of what they needed from me. Mm. And, um, and of course... That was it, a
0: pressure that was that was weighing
1: on you. Oh, absolutely. And it didn't, obviously, I wasn't completely oblivious to the fact that I'm sitting here complaining to a homeless man about, oh, how difficult my little life is working as a lobbyist and making, compared to what he was making, a, a ton of money. But we had this conversation and it felt really genuine and real and more real than anything that i'd ever shared in a really long time with somebody right
0: because you've been having a lot of these superficial like schmoozy kinds of there conversations was no barrier. Yeah. Barrier. Was there was no
1: barrier barrier <laughs> there was just barrier there's no barrier it's the
0: french way of saying that.
1: <laughs> there was no devotion <laughs> there was uh there was really no barrier you know because i i didn't know him and and he didn't know me and i felt that I could share with him things that I couldn't really share with people that I had a relationship with because, mm-hmm. you know, what would they think and all of this stuff. So...
0: Do you think because of that in D.C., because you never knew who were the people you could trust, who were the people that were your real friends? Was it kind of that sort of scenario?
1: Yeah, but not only that. I think it it's not a D.C. thing. Okay. It's a world thing. Yeah. I think that there's really something... It's a twofold risk that you take telling something somebody something really personal about yourself that you don't often share. The first risk is that information in any way whether it's something that affects somebody else or not is power. So having information, somebody having information about you feels almost like a transaction of okay, right. hey, I'm telling you something and now you know this about me and I've never told anyone this. Uh, but then the other side of that is if this person then goes and breaks that trust and tells somebody else, or not even that, but while you're telling them this story, this person like raises an eyebrow or mm-hmm. says something that strikes you as maybe even a little judgmental or strikes you as, you know, you're not being understood and then that's like a twofold break of trust because you've trusted someone you shouldn't have. So there's a lot of fear associated with telling somebody something about yourself that you aren't comfortable with. Um, And this was non-existent with this guy on the street he knows nothing about me why would what impetus would he have to use this information against me and then who also who would he tell you know oh this random girl that i ran into was fetching about yada yada so um that's really where it came together this idea of i just had a conversation with a stranger and it was more cathartic than anything i've done in a long time how do I duplicate this? Mm-hmm. How do I do this again?
0: You just wanted to... Were you, was it, did it come also out of like a, wanting to connect with people too?
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. there is there was a need, especially now this is where it's more DC-centric, where the alienation there is real because as I was saying, you need to play a role. You need to be somebody, especially to succeed within a very specific world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you probably had similar experiences you were saying in L.A. where mm-hmm. you're name dropping and, you know.
0: Oh, I wouldn't do it.
1: You wouldn't? <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Is that why you left?
0: Well, I mean, I was just there. I was working on a documentary, and when, the, when it ended, I was like, time to get back to New York.
1: Yeah. So it was a need to connect as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and on my part, I thought that my kind of natural ability to listen to people would come in handy in terms of having these conversations and, and duplicating this experience. And that's when I posted the ad on Craigslist.
0: Yeah. And um, what was going through your head when you first started doing these? What do you call them? What you consider them? Interviews? Conversations?
1: Conversations. Yeah. yeah. Um, my first idea was, nobody's going to respond to this, my first thought. And... I posted the ad kind of, you know, like when you send like a bad email or you respond in a way that's like not very well thought out. And then Mm -hmm. you're just like, oh, my gosh, that was such a bad idea. Yeah, it's
0: like I should have thought about this before I hit send.
1: Yes, I should have. And you're like, I want to take it back. Yeah. And so I posted the ad. and I was like, oh, you know, this is just so misguided. But I didn't take it down to my credit. And I, I woke up the next morning. This was that night when I posted it. I woke up the next morning and I already had a few responses. Wow! And I never thought that would happen. I thought people are going to read this. It's probably going to get flagged. And then that's it. Um, and that could have happened and I probably would not have pursued it.
0: Well, when when did you know that you wanted to you know, leave working as a lobbyist and do that full time?
1: I had done several meetings already. I had met with a lot of people and
0: different publications oh people i'm sorry i meant uh i thought you meant you had met with people to like as a way to publish this
1: oh no 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 this was you had met with very right yeah no just i had been having conversations with people Mm -hmm. through the ad and
0: and you were meeting people in person i
1: was meeting people in person when this first started this was all person like eye to eye sitting across from them having a coffee at a starbucks yeah um and I realize now how crazy that sounds that I'm meeting people off of Craigslist. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I use Craigslist all the time to like buy, buy things. Stuff. Yeah, it's it's always like we're all just people. Yeah,
1: and that's why it was Craigslist because half of my furniture, if not more, is from Craigslist. Yeah. And so this was just that kind of the tip of my fingers. Oh obvious i'll just post it here right. so it was under the personals strictly platonic section mm-hmm. um i used to look at the misconnection stuff All the for time. a chuckle too yeah so this was just really you know the first thing i thought of which is why it got posted there um and the very first person i met with was this lady who was like in her mid 40s i want to say mm-hmm. who had been a, a heroin addict for like two decades um she had kids and was clean obviously when I met her but she was telling me about like her story the ups and downs and the things that you know she had done that she didn't really feel comfortable yeah she wasn't very proud of yeah so we had this conversation and it was at the park I was still working full-time at this point it was at the park around the corner from where I worked And then I walked her to the train station and I went back to my office and I sat down in my chair and I had this moment of, oh my gosh, that was so surreal. Mm -hmm. And how do I get myself from that? Place to writing about this memo. You know, right. It just seems so insignificant, so stupid compared to what I've just done.
0: Did you think about how you could make it work financially? Was that a Absolutely concern? not, yeah. no.
1: This was, this was at its infancy and always at its heart has been a project about connecting with people mm. and giving them a place to say things where they feel safe right. and where they feel they can share anything without...
0: This idea of connections is really interesting because we're so connected in in so many ways but not really connected. Superficially. Superficially, right? Like yeah. my Instagram, like that's that's not you know or anybody's Instagram yeah. it's highly curated of how they Absolutely. want to portray themselves Absolutely. or email, even emails I find are just my least favorite way of communication, right. you know? There's a certain thing, there's a tone, the inflection. Yeah. yeah. The energy of a conversation.
1: That is very different from what you get with social media and any other really electronic interaction. But I
0: think we have this falsehood, or I think we have this belief, I think we falsely have this belief that we are more connected than we really are. Yeah.
1: I think that the connection actually, I would argue, makes us even more alienated, Mm -hmm. right? Feeling that we're always plugged in, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. You know, you're sharing these filtered versions of the highlights of your life. Makes you feel that there are people out there who are listening and seeing and liking your stuff, right. but none of how much of it is actually genuinely and
0: really you, right? You know, when I'll, when I'll make a video and I see it has view counts, that doesn't mean anything, that's just a number on a screen, yeah. You know,
1: but that is a moment of people when they see that that right. number and they see that it's high or low, it's the validation of it, and right. that's what's really psychologically the most harmful part of I, social media I, I completely members. agree. I completely um, agree. And you don't get that when it's just a random stranger sitting across the table from you. And the idea of an audience, which is always present when you're having these conversations or putting anything online, is not there when you're talking to a random stranger, right? right? I am your audience, technically. But my interaction in that conversation is so minimal that it's almost like I'm eavesdropping on a conversation that somebody's having with themselves. And only when you banish the idea of an audience do you really get a genuine, heartfelt kind of conversation with the person. You know, Mm -hmm. just creating that sphere when they feel that they're alone and they can say anything.
0: What was important for you to do with this project?
1: You know, we've talked a lot about... Masks, and Mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about filters and and the duplicity of feeling like you have to be someone else or you have to live a certain life or you have to say certain things. And this is a place where you don't have to do anything. I'm there for you to basically say to whatever you want to share, Mm -hmm. as much of it or as little of it as possible. So it's an opportunity to really unload, Mm -hmm. unburden,
0: Has doing the project changed you?
1: Yeah. And not in, you know, not always in a good way. You always think that, oh, this is great. I've learned so much, yada, yada, great, wonderful. But then you take on a lot. You take on a lot of people's problems. Right,
0: like, I mean, are you able to, like... You know, open yourself up enough to be sensitive to what people are saying, but not enough where you're just carrying it around you can't do
1: that. There's absolutely no way to do that. And my husband will tell you he's an emergency room doctor. You either care all the way or you don't. Yeah. There's no gray area. Yeah. Um, and so I care all the way. There's really no other way to go about it. Because people sense when somebody's hedging. They sense when you you're not invested. They sense when you're guarded and then there's no point to doing this right and so i really need to make myself vulnerable to the story so that i can understand about it and then on top of that so that i could process about it and write about it in a way that's honest and true to what the person has told me right otherwise what's the point of it you know i really need to let it soak in all the way
0: have you connected with people that have read the story read your you know your articles and uh talked about how it's affected them
1: yes uh so i get a lot of emails from the the quartz column and i think a lot of people it's funny some of this stuff ended up on Reddit and Reddit is a hell of a place but uh,
0: very interesting place yeah, yeah there
1: were people commenting on the article and it's very divisive you know you have a lot of very opinionated people who fall on one side or another of an issue you know there was one on immigration that was posted last week there was another one on a guy oh
0: about oh, the guy who was uh, working with his father doing yeah. construction and stuff yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and people were commenting on it on Reddit there's uh, something about I don't read these by the way alex does and <laughs> he tells me what's going on yeah you can't read the
0: comments uh-uh. i have a personal policy i won't read comments don't of, like, read the comments. exactly I won't um, do it. it's just people working out their own issues yes
1: but that's good right like that's yeah. what i want yeah. i want that um and then there was another one that got, also got posted on reddit it was this guy who was having marital issues and was just like a weird gray area in his life and just couldn't seem with to...
0: the with the car with driving home where he yeah, has this, like, 38 like 38 minutes, minutes
1: you should have, you should see what these people had to say about the guy, just, oh, like, oh, you know, maybe he should be nicer to his wife, and then there were other people saying, you know, I've, I feel like this guy, I've yeah. been there, I, I share these feelings, you know, and what's wrong with being vulnerable, and you're telling allowed somebody. to have
0: those feelings, yes,
1: exactly, but then you get where people are just like, oh, no, you're not, and then, you know, somebody else has another, it's just, it's wonderful, and it's a very productive conversation, and even if nobody's agreeing about anything, at least people are talking about it and they know that that's out there and people are feeling this way and that's exactly the point of it it doesn't have to be beautiful and pretty and productive and put a bow on it and take it as a life lesson as long as you're talking about it that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing
0: you know I feel in general we're we're moving towards like a more of a culture of openness and sharing -sharing, Mm oversharing. you know and um, you know we can connect with people over the same things that we're going through you know it's a lot easier for us to feel less alone, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're struggling with certain things because there's more people sharing and their experiences and what they're going through. And the thing, I guess my question on that for you is, you know, where do you go from there? Like, where do you take it from there? Besides just being like, oh, this person's going through the same thing as me. Like, what's the next step in that?
1: It just, you know, taking away like action items from something like this, I think is counterproductive because... There's really never such a thing as, you know, reading like a top five list of what I do in the morning so that my life is better and then that actually working out for you. (laughs) And I don't think that the stories are like that either where you read it and you're like, oh, so this is what I should do. It's more so like a gradual information of the holistic person and their way of being about different issues. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like the shock value of some of these stories will... I think start a process of internally getting a person thinking about different things that they otherwise wouldn't have. And in the long run, I think that will have an effect, but the impact of it, I don't think will be like that, of you course. know, immediate.
0: Well, no, but also it's just like uh, you know, just reading that guy's story about his thirty-eight minutes that he has to himself every day. You know, I'm not in that situation, but you know, that could be a scenario that I'm in one day. And just like kind of having that in my head is like this is a this is one way it can go. Yeah. And if you see that, what are the steps that you do to avoid getting to that right. spot in a way? It's you know, that's a- how I was when I was reading yeah. it. That's how that's how I was kind of like reacting to it right you know
1: it's a it's a point of reference and it's really an internal reflection that this stories like these start for people and i hope they would right where it's you're reading about the guy and you either are him and you you do associate with a lot of his feelings or you're not and you fear becoming him right or you're just totally different and the story doesn't resonate and it's like whatever i just wasted five minutes of you're
0: my life you're just a cold unfeeling robot <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah and that happens yeah. so it's totally fine but the fact is that these stories they're very you know and i'll speak to people and they'll be very concerned about oh well will i be point will i be Will it be obvious that this is me? Mm. And the way that the stories are written, it basically is impossible to know who shared the story because what it captures is the feelings, right? The sadness, alienation, shame, etc., etc. And those are common. There's really nothing new under the sun. I mean, they're packaged in a person's particular you know, lifestyle and the little details that clutter their lives. But at the very basis of all of these stories is something that everybody feels. Mm. Um, And that's what I really want to evoke here is that idea of you've been here, you've seen this and it scared you at some point. So be aware of it, like take it in, internalize it. And maybe this will make a change. Maybe it'll make a difference. Maybe it'll open up like a part of your heart that was, didn't understand something like this before. And you'll be different to somebody. right? Because you'll understand like we all carry our shitty burdens around. And so maybe.
0: All the damn time. All the damn time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's luggage that's hard to lose. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite thing that doing this has allowed you to do?
1: I don't know if everybody else does this. You know, sometimes you sometimes you feel like you know everything there is to know about yourself and sometimes you feel like you're clueless and you have no idea like right. who you are and what makes you tick <laughs> and what you're doing and, and why you're here. And I feel like I'll go through my life sometimes and I'll be like, Oh, shit, yeah, this is like this is something that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not it's no longer like a testing the waters thing. I've done it. I've taken this risk. I'm I'm talking to these people about their issues and it makes you realize how totally insignificant you are. Right. Um as a person, as a society, as kind of humanity in general, we share so much. So much of it is in common. And yeah, sure, some people are highlighted and they get their 15 minutes and others aren't and they don't. But there really is no new feeling. And tapping into that yeah. is so fascinating. It just kind of, it, it informs who you are and what you think about other people and how you interact with other people. And it also completely cuts the bullshit out of every conversation. Right. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't care. And I'll tell you that if I don't care, you know, because at the end of the day, I've heard enough and I've seen enough where I think being genuine is more important than
0: completely, you know, stepping back a little bit and looking at kind of the conversations as a whole. Do you see any sort of um, kind of themes or patterns in terms of like the tough moments that people are going through to try and or, you know, you know, tough moments that people are trying to get through? Because they're like a constant theme that a lot of, you know, we seem to all be struggling with, like boil it down into like an essence of something.
1: I mean, yeah, it's the essence of being, right? Like (laughs) struggling to be, you don't, there's no like roadmap. You don't get a way to do things that you just kind of follow. And when you do, it's almost always wrong, I find. So people, I mean, are struggling with different things, but And it may come in different packages, but at the end of the day, it's kind of everybody just struggles to make it through the day. And sometimes it's like a very active thing. Like if you have an addiction or a mental illness, it's a very active struggle. I've spoken to people and this is where it's amazing that I have phone conversations and I've opened myself up to that possibility now because I've spoken to people who have like extreme social anxiety and they just can't be around people. And, um, and,
0: and to explain that to someone, people don't even get that. You have Unless to, you felt even an ounce yes, of that feeling. exactly. You know?
1: Exactly. And that's what's important for me to do is before each meeting, I'll ask somebody to categorize whatever they want to talk about. And sometimes they go into depth. Other times it's just a couple of words. Like, I want to talk about an addiction or a sexual fetish. or. And you think you get a lot of those on Craigslist? Not very many. Not so many. much, yeah. Um, so... And then I look these things up, try to learn about them, try to understand, and read, you know, through things that people have gone through. And then I'll have a conversation, and I feel that that kind of informs the way that I listen, actively listen, versus just kind of passively hearing what somebody says. Um, and I think that's really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. What are the th- what like drives you to keep going forward with this?
1: It's very up and down doing something like this. It was a complete, you know, going out on a limb type of thing. You know, I had a very, jo- very rigid job. I had a career trajectory. I had several thousand dollars in student loans. Yeah. And uh, and then I happened upon this thing, and I started doing it, and I realized I can't stop. I need right. this needs to be a thing. I'm sitting on something that is so much bigger. I need to tap. Into this, I can't just let it go. Then there's a finality to it, and then you start thinking, "What the,
0: f- have, I yeah. what the f- have I done? What the
1: fuck have I done?" And it's uh, like you wake up in the morning and you're like, "Oh shit! Like I'm not going to work, quote unquote, today. I, I have I'm doing this thing, and it's not real sometimes, right. and it's terrifying because you're setting your own schedule, you're doing your own thing, and." And then how do you describe to other people like what I'm doing with my life now that I've quit my job? You know, mm-hmm. it just m- might sound so preposterous to some. Uh, but then you have a meeting and then you like see, hear, feel somebody. You're, you're you're Somebody's basically opening up and telling you something that they've never told anybody else before. And there's that level of trust that they're putting in you. And there's so much rawness and so much genuine feeling in that conversation where when i walk away from it it just it almost like clarifies everything it becomes crystallized and you see okay i get it now mm-hmm. i know why i'm doing this right. now and then of course over the span of the day that great picture breaks apart again and you have to keep doing it over again to kind of see And get that same feeling and see why you're doing all of it. And eventually you've done it. I've done it enough where now I know that this is a good thing. And even if it's not this amazing earth shattering, life-changing thing, for me, it has been. It has been an experience that I would just never undo. Right. So. Well,
0: what are your hopes for it? Like, where do you want to take it? What do you want to do with it?
1: Well, so I'm writing Craig's confessional, the book. Uh Uh-huh. And I think on top of the stories that are going to be obviously told in, in, from the perspective of the people that I've met with, um, there's also a bit of a reflection there of what it's been like to live my life while doing this. So it's a bit of a memoir um, braided into each of these stories. Right. Um, and I hope that that will be something that again engenders a conversation starts um what i hope to do is start a conversation about mental illness most of all because mm-hmm. a lot of these stories are at the basis of all of this is an illness a secret that's not spoken about right um and even if it's not mental illness related, just start a conversation about anything, right? Mm -hmm. Any of the stories that I've heard. And hopefully this will create a space where people can speak frankly about things that otherwise are kind of relegated to the personal realm of life. Um, And if I could find a way to do this for the rest of my life, that is absolutely what I would do. Just listen to people's stories and tell them in a way that resonates with,
0: do you feel the burden of like knowing what you want to do and trying to make that be, you know, be your be all and all? Uh,
1: you know, sometimes I know exactly what I want to do and other times I'm open to other things and I feel like I know, I know nothing. Right. And that's great. You know, I know nothing. Knowing <laughs> that is great. But it's also terrifying because, you, right? you not in the larger sense of my life, but in the concrete sense of like having to answer to my parents and my husband's parents. <laughs> <laughs> There's that like, OK, great. So when's the book coming out? How are you monetizing this? Uh, there are these wonderful, very... um um pragmatic questions that people have and I'm a very pragmatic person myself Mm -hmm. although maybe the nature of the project may may not exactly make that obvious but I have these questions myself too and I think it'll figure itself out I think you know at the end of it this is a great thing and I'm okay with it being just that
0: great I think that's a great place to end it Helena Bala thank you so much
1: thanks for having me
0: yeah